It's Friday, March 19th. I'm Stephen Fee, and this is The Pen Pod, a podcast from Pen America. On today's edition, Friday means tough questions, where we wade through the week's news with Pen America CEO Suzanne Nossel. This week, limitations on protest rights, vaccination, disinformation, and human rights in Saudi Arabia. Then, academic freedom, our Jonathan Friedman interviews a Texas community college professor effectively fired for speaking out and critiquing the college's leadership, what it means for free speech on campus. I'm Stephen Fee, all that coming up on The Pen Pod. It's Friday, so that means time for Tough Questions, our weekly segment where we grill PEN America CEO Suzanne Nossel on tricky questions of free speech from the past week. And Suzanne joins me now. Hey, Suzanne. Hey, Stephen. So, you know, there was a big story out of the United Kingdom this week um, where the killing of a young woman in London has led to massive protests. That in turn has led to a police crackdown, and that is now leading to uh, some proposed legislation that could curb protest rights. Um, you know, this is something we've documented extensively in the U.S., attempts to, to criminalize protests. Does it worry you to see this kind of legislation cropping up in the U.K. and potentially elsewhere? Yeah, it does. Look, we issued our report Arresting Dissent last spring. It came out just on the eve of the murder of George Floyd and the protest movement uh, centered on Black Lives Matter that swelled up over the summer. And our report documented this really disturbing pattern of the introduction of laws and and bills restricting protest in dozens of states across the country. They were overwhelmingly introduced by Republican legislators in the wake of protests uh, against Trump administration policies, the the Women's March, the airport protest against the Muslim ban, uh, protests in relation to gun violence, uh, pipelines, so kind of progressive causes uh, that people were rallying to uh, express their grievances with. And in response, these Republican legislators tabled proposal after proposal, constricting those rights, increasing penalties, expanding the set of places where you uh, are not allowed to assemble, and, uh, you know, really disturbing sort of encroachment on free speech rights, and one that seemed pretty unmistakably ideologically Motivated. We also talked about how the American uh, Legislative Exchange Council, this Koch brothers funded group that coordinates state level legislation, was behind most of these, uh, many of these proposals. So, what we saw in the UK over the last week is something uh, that, you know, has its parallel in the US, which is in the wake of this. You know, horrific uh, murder of a young woman, which was done by a police officer. There was a protest uh, in her name and kind of a vigil in the park where she disappeared and the police reacted uh, harshly and were rounding people up and knocking people to the ground and shoving them into police vans. And you know, it mirrored some of the horrifying scenes we saw last summer in terms of the overly aggressive police response to the Black Lives Matter protests. And I think in both instances, it was a parallel dynamic at work, which is when protests target the police uh, or, or police conduct, 
the it, it, it provokes this intense, almost reflexive response that is disproportionate and and would you know motivated by the sense of, of particular aggrievement by the police that they are being targeted and are in the crosshairs. And so the introduction of this sweeping kind of anti-protest legislation that uh, restricts you know where where you can protest if your protest is creating any kind of disturbance, even if it's just one person, it can be shut down if it interferes with any activities. Uh, you know that can be a basis to suppress it. You know, it really runs counter to freedom of assembly rights. I mean, the very nature of protests is, is somewhat disruptive. People have to see it. It has to you know present itself itself uh, in a place where you don't expect it and and force people to have a reaction. And there's also a specific reference to protection of monuments, because there were some incidents in the UK of people sort of uh, tearing down monuments as part of protests uh, over the last year. And so the timing, uh, you know, is, is, is sort of uh, dubious at best. There's no reference in the government's reaction to the problem of sexual assault, you know, even by a police officer, uh, you know, and more broadly against women. And so it really landed poorly and I, I think runs counter to the UK's professed uh, obligations and commitments to uphold freedom of assembly rights. Right, right. Well, so I want to switch over to here in the US. Um, you know, President Biden has set ambitious plans to vaccinate all eligible adults by the summertime. Um, but meantime, a new CBS News poll this week uh, suggests alarmingly high rates of vaccine hesitancy, particularly among self-identified Republicans, among other groups, I should say. Um, but I'm curious, what does that tell you about truth and trust and disinformation breaking on party lines in the U.S. right now? Yeah, look, I mean, it's really not too surprising when you have, you know, in the wake of a presidency where, uh, you know, Donald Trump uh, spending four years trying to discredit science, government officials, uh, government policy, you know, that that worked. And now you have uh, a substantial segment of his support base dubious about, you know, that which is the route to what I think everyone wants, which is a return to the normalcy in society. So, uh, you know, it's not surprising. I think, you know, former President Trump, you know, had, uh, put out a, a message last week wanting to take credit for the rollout of the vaccine, saying, oh, if you get the vaccine, you should, uh, you know, give the kudos to me. What he really could be do that would be far more constructive is to urge and implore his supporters to go out and get vaccinated. You know, he's been vaccinated for months. Uh, you know, he takes pride. And, you know, I think some of the pride is um, justifiable in the speed with which the vaccines were developed and approved, uh, you know, thanks in good part to government support, which he helped make happen. And so, uh, you know, he should be a champion of getting every American vaccinated. Uh, and yet, you know, we don't hear that. And the result, of course, is that just the process is slowed down. And, you know, you have to sort of worry about these pockets of people who may be resistant uh, and, and, and be uh, locuses of disease, you know, after the rest of us are, you know, as the rest of us sort of hopefully get to the verge of herd immunity. I think it's important to draw a distinction between, you know, that population and other populations that have, you know, this this term vaccine hesitancy, 
you know, for historical reasons or because of their own experience with the healthcare system. And I think a lot of valiant work is being done within those communities to try to make people feel comfortable, to bring them around, to work with effective messengers and churches and community organizations who can be heard, uh, you know, with their message that the vaccine is safe and, and we all need to get it as soon as we are eligible. Yeah, absolutely. Well, let me just lastly, Suzanne, yesterday you had the opportunity to testify before a subcommittee of the House Foreign Affairs Committee um, on human rights in Saudi Arabia. Um, And, you know, I I think we talked on this podcast even about some big progress as we've seen a new administration. We've seen the release of uh, one of our uh, honorees, one of our Penn Barbie Freedom to Write honorees who had been imprisoned in Saudi Arabia, although she's not fully free. Um, And also some breakthroughs on accountability uh, for the murder of, of journalist Jamal Khashoggi. What more does the Biden-Harris administration need to do to ensure accountability? And what can we all be doing to support human rights in Saudi Arabia? Look, I think it's very important. What I said yesterday in my testimony is that a good part of how the Biden administration will be measured in terms of its professed commitment to centering human rights in its foreign policy is in relation to Saudi Arabia, where these trade-offs are sort of very palpable. And the one that, uh, you know, came up most recently, of course, is in relation to the murder of Jamal Khashoggi, where the Biden administration rightly made good on its promise to release the uh, Director of National Intelligence report that essentially found that Crown Prince Mohammed bin Sultan uh, Salman is culpable for having directed the murder. And it ordered, uh, in the wake of that, the uh, U.S. government ordered sanctions on 76 people who are uh, associated with that crime, but stopped short of sanctioning MBS. And, you know, this, that was very controversial among the human rights community, there's a strong feeling that, you know, they, uh, you know, when it came to the person at the highest level who clearly was behind this, that, uh, you know, the administration couldn't see its way through to uh, extending the sanctions there. And, you know, the explanation that was given sort of uh, informally uh, and what people understood is that there was just there are too many equities in the bilateral relationship. There was a feeling that this uh, having sanctioned uh, MBS would just blow up the bilateral relationship, but also that the administration, this was not the end of the line and that there would be further steps. And so I think the question comes down now to really what those further steps are and whether they're seen to be meaningful. There are proposals in Congress to impose a travel ban on MBS, uh, you know, something that we would support. I think it's extremely important that MBS not be uh, anytime soon and not before some dramatic actions to address Saudi's human rights record, that he not be welcomed into these international fora that he clearly, uh, you know, likes to indulge and hobnob in, and that he, you know, remain a stigmatized, discredited, uh, leader, notwithstanding uh, the 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 decision not to implement sanctions alongside uh, the rest of those held responsible. So that's very important. I also talked about uh, other venues where the the U.S. could press for accountability in Saudi Arabia, 
including the UN Human Rights Council. Saudi has been a member of the council for 12 of the last 15 years. They clearly care about it when they uh, make their case for membership. They've pledged to consider adopting various UN treaties, including the, you know, really the seminal treaty, the Universal Declaration on Human Rights and the International uh, Covenant on Civil and Political Rights. Saudi Arabia is uh, not a party to either of those. Uh, so that's something, that's a set of actions that they could take. Uh, you know, originally uh, there was a claim that the ICCPR was inconsistent with Sharia law, but many Muslim countries now have signed on to it. So I think there are a lot of points of leverage that the United States and the Biden administration has, and it's going to be extremely important for them to exercise them because the idea that Mohammed bin Salman just let, is, is let off the hook, you know, really undercuts sort of any any message of accountability uh, for, for others for what was, you know, a crime that just shocked the conscience of the world in a way that, uh, you know, it's, it's sort of hard to remember the last thing that, uh, you know, instilled, you know, the term bone saw. You'll never hear that again without thinking about the fate of Jamal Khashoggi. Absolutely. Well, Suzanne Nossel, she's CEO of PEN America and author of Dare to Speak, Defending Free Speech for All. Thanks a lot, Suzanne. Thanks, Stephen. Academic freedom and getting caught in the crosshairs. Our Jonathan Friedman has that conversation. It has been a tumultuous academic year for Laura Burnett, professor of history at Collin College in Texas. Since last fall, Burnett has been engaged in an escalating battle with the college leaders over their COVID-19 response and her right to criticize their leaders' decisions. Recently, Burnett was notified that her contract will not be renewed for the fall, and as a contingent professor, she has been effectively terminated. The reason given? That her conduct has been, quote-unquote, insubordinate, that she has been publicly critical of colleagues and the college leaders, and that she has impeded the college's ability to have our harmonious workplace. A staunch defender of free speech, Professor Laura Burnett disagrees. Laura, thanks so much for being here. You bet it's my pleasure. Let's dive right in. So what makes you think that Colin College is retaliating against you for your previous criticisms? Well, partly because they told me so <laughs> in their, in their uh, letter uh, uh, informing me that my contract wouldn't be renewed and because of what they've said in past communications. Um, the, uh, what's interesting is, you know, um, in October, I... I came on the national um, right-wing attention span momentarily for tweeting something critical about Mike Pence during the vice presidential debates that was picked up by a uh, campus reform uh, propagandist and then shoveled from there to Fox News. So I, I um, was on the incoming end of a lot of public criticism coming my way from uh, email and, and on social media, which is fine, by the way. I believe in other people's First Amendment rights to criticize me for things that I say on Twitter. That's, you know, that's fair game. Um, and my college also received these communications, including, as my college president, Neil Matkin, said, a, uh, calls and contacts from legislators. That's what he claimed, that people were calling and contacting who, who were elected representatives who were contacting the college to fire me over a single tweet about 
Mike Pence talking over the woman moderator of the debate. Um, and uh, because of how the college responded to that public criticism, which was not to, you know, issue a simple statement, our employees uh, don't re- on Twitter don't represent our views, and, you know, they have First Amendment rights, but the college could have handled that in a sentence. Uh, instead, the college president issued this, this long email to um, all my colleagues. It went to all faculty and all staff on every campus, um, uh, decrying my, you know, horrible choice to make political statements on Twitter as if this were somehow something that doesn't happen on Twitter every day all the time. Uh, and, and saying that uh, personnel actions, you know, aren't going to be played out in public, but implying that they were coming. And then he posted a public statement on the college's uh, webpage that uh, called my speech, you know, vile, hateful, and ill-considered. Um, his claim to have been contacted by legislators caught the eye of um, the Foundation for Individual Rights in Education. It caught the eye of Adam Steinbaugh at fire. And so he issued a, a Freedom of Information Act request that the college then has spent the last four months fighting. The college fought this FOIA request from October 15th, I think, when it was first issued, to um, January, when this the Attorney General's office in the state of Texas finally ruled that, yes, the college must turn over these calls and contacts from legislators. And... Uh, I kind of expected a tranche of documents, and instead what was turned over was a single text message from a single legislator who asked the president if I am paid with taxpayer dollars, which I am, as is the college president, and um, the college president responded by saying, um, I'm, I'm taking care of this. Um, she was already on my radar screen before the current issue. And that was really telling for me because not only did I, you know, not only did I discover that that um, that the college president greatly exaggerated the political outcry he was getting about a single tweet about Mike Pence on a night when there must have been, you know, fifty million tweets about Mike Pence circulating in, in the Twitter sphere. Um, but he told that legislator I was already on his radar screen. And I could, I couldn't. I thought, for what? I mean, I've been, I've been at the school for uh, as a full timer for just a, two semesters before last fall semester. Stellar evaluations, all, all the good stuff. Great uh, relationship with my uh, deans and and great evals for my students. Why would I be on his radar screen? And I and I, I realized after thinking about it, it's because of COVID, and because. Uh, I joined some of my colleagues this summer in um, in, in uh, collectively um, asking for a change in the college's COVID plans. Um, I was one of, uh, of many colleagues who signed an open kind of white paper that cert- it was open in the sense that it circulated among faculty, asking the college to reconsider its plan for for mostly face to face instruction in the fall. Um, that, I guess, is what put me on, on Neil Matkin's radar screen, as he put it. Uh, in, uh, when, when school reopened in the fall, he sent out an email, uh, an incredibly irresponsible email, to all faculty and staff 
saying that, you know, reopening plans are great, we're ready to roll, our enrollments are good, and that the COVID crisis has been overblown by the media and people are overreacting and because they, you know, are, are, have been frightened by the media. And um, he, he, he cited some statistics that were not particularly well calculated on his part. He said, if you, if you have something better, you know, email me and, and, and let me know. And, and I wrote him a, a pretty polite email, you know, and, and just, I, I said, I, you know, I'm not a statistician. I'm not an epidemiologist and it's, it's not going to help to, to send you a raft of statistics, but I do want to ask why you sent this particular message to all of us because it really minimized the concerns of um, people with pre-existing conditions or people who may have taken extra steps during this pandemic to stay safe. It was really inconsiderate in that way. And I told him, I said, I'm sure you didn't mean to be inconsiderate, but I, I wonder if you could um, if, if you could issue a, some kind of clarifying statement, because as it stands, this is really um, dismissive of the concerns of so many faculty. So this puts you on their radar. And now in hindsight, everything that happened since feels retaliatory. You're also, I understand, not the first professor who's been effectively terminated for signing that letter. No, in fact, they they kind of tackled us in reverse order in a way that um, the the um, well, I guess not. I, I guess they tackled us in chronological order. The other two professors who have been fired, all three of us are women. All three of us fired within uh, less than four weeks of one another. And um, a Professor Audra Heaslip is a humanities professor. She has been the director of the Humanities Center at one of our campuses. And uh, she is the person who took it upon herself to put together that original white paper. It was a document with, with you know, the latest research available to people at the time when, when, the, when the resolution circulated um, and provided space for faculty to sign um, the statement, which requested a greater faculty voice and, um, and as much online teaching as possible. There was no request for 100% online, but as much online teaching as possible. So she, she wrote this very well-written and very well-argued um, position paper and invited all the faculty to sign it. And um, the signing statements were absolutely heartbreaking. Uh, signing statements from people who had had family members die of COVID, signing statements from people who have pre-existing conditions and can't, you know, can't imagine uh, stepping into a classroom. 129 full-time faculty signed that white paper. And um, parallel to that effort, my other colleague, Suzanne Jones, uh, who is a professor of education, was uh, active in organizing a local chapter of the Texas Faculty Association so that Colin professors would have an organization um, to help them use their voice um, to ask for safety and, and, and you know, and, and, to, and to have the administration's ear for our concerns. Um, so, so yeah, the Audra, Professor Heaslip and Professor Jones were, were fired first, and then my firing came uh, almost four weeks later. And we have, you know, different specific circumstances, but for all three of us, 
we were told that the things we are saying is what's getting us fired. That 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 we are that we are speaking in a way that that goes against the messaging of the college, and that we're somehow that is somehow making it difficult for the college to function because there are apparently you know apparently disagreement is is uh, enough to make the college stop functioning, and that's that doesn't say much for the for the the robust. Um, uh, the 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 robust uh, humanistic training of whoever's in charge of the college, but but uh, that's that's really it. I mean, the three of us were were canned for um, for talking to the press, for um, talking online, for talking to one another about what um, the college has 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 done that's been so unsafe we had a professor die of covid last fall we had a student die of covid last right. fall and just last night at the board meeting which was broadcast online where 200 people showed up to protest on behalf of all three of us right after after 30 minutes of public comment and then and then some board meeting business and then another probably 20 minutes of public comment only then did the college president announce that we have lost three more Holland faculty members. It, it, it just outrageous. It was buried in the middle of this meeting, at you know, as part of the president's report. First, you know, here, here we're sorry to announce the death of these members of our Holland family. Next, let me tell you about basketball trivia night. I mean, really, that that crass. So that's. That's why I, I can say with some confidence that the college is retaliating against me uh, for my speech because there's a literal text message from a legislator to the college president asking him to do just that, and he's done it. And and not just you, but but these colleagues as well. I mean, That's I think right. it, it's 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 pretty blatant and um, a bit shocking to think that a college would decide that some kind of dissent or disagreement about these issues would be, you know, so unwelcome or detrimental when it's really quite core to what the Academy stands for. I wonder if if you can put your historian hat on for just a minute, you know, what worries you about your treatment at Colin in light of the broader cultural and political moment we're in as a country? Well, um, there are a few things at work. And of course, one of them is uh, this economic moment that we're in. I mean, who has suffered the most during this pandemic in terms of job losses that aren't coming back? It's been minorities and women. And um, it's a little bit chilling, to say the least, and I think deliberately chilling, as in a deliberate attempt to chill free speech, for the college to single out three women for firing when every statistic we have shows that women are, are the losses that have that have accrued to women professionally because of this pandemic and the sustained uh, loss of jobs are not coming back. So that's, that's part of it. That's, that's a, a real concern. I think historically people need to understand the connection between um, the, uh, the outcries about liberal professors and this sort of long-term um, plan that has been effectuated and paid by some libertarian you know, activists and profiteers who are looking to defund public higher education. 
these two things go together. The outcry against, you know, professors or higher education or postmodernism or whatever the 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 uh, the signal of the moment is, and the calls to defund higher education. Um, I mean, in fall 2020, our own president at the college talked about how he was working towards the Amazonification of Collin College. That was his exact word, the Amazonification of Collin College to transform the school into um, a nimble organization. If you hear the word nimble applied to a college, run. There's nothing nimble about about, about uh, um, the careful scholarly um, consideration and pursuit of knowledge. It's, it's really, it's, it's the slow growth kind of life. So he wants to turn it into a nimble organization, he says, that can respond quickly to changing business conditions. And um, I guess nimble organizations and Amazon and organizations that want to be like Amazon are really the, the dissent or disagreement or even discussion grinds their gears. It gets in the way of their plans for efficiency and for um, homogeneity and for turning us all into uh, cogs that are going to produce kind of identical and interchangeable bunches of knowledge that we can just drop into passive students' heads. That's, that's really the vision behind this. It's a, it's a weird kind of 21st century Taylorism and, uh, it's, it's, you know, in the 80s and 90s, the scary buzzword for um, these libertarian profiteers was political correctness. Beware of political correctness. Today, the buzzword's cancel culture, right? This is a new packaging of the same idea that, that uh, somehow higher education is a threat to free speech and free discourse, and so what happens is that somebody in the 90s cries political correctness or somebody today like Jim Jordan in the House of Representatives says cancel culture. We need hearings on cancel culture. And this creates this narrative that colleges are wasting taxpayer dollars. And uh, the result of that narrative is very deliberate. What's the result of that narrative? The end game of that narrative is to end up with a bill like the bill that's being discussed in the Florida legislature, where um, students who want to major in history or English don't get financial aid, you know, create this suspicion around the, the very disciplines that encourage critical thinking and, you know, careful evaluation of information and sources. Um, those are the disciplines that make people or can help people to become resistant to being turning turned into cogs in a machine. Those are the, those are the disciplines where people learn to argue. So those are the disciplines that they, that they would like to see disappear. When, when uh, the village morality police start to punish uh, liberal professors for our, for you know, violating the norms of the community they're not, they're not sticking it to the liberal elites on the coast. They're sticking it to their own students. They're punishing their own students by taking away from them uh, opportunities to, to imagine a world beyond their own horizons. And I, that's a real shame. And, and I hope that, I hope that uh, college professors who hear this 
will talk to their colleagues, join uh, the AAUP or your local faculty association, even if it doesn't provide collective bargaining rights, and um, speak up together for one another. If any of you are ever targeted by a right-wing outrage machine, um, speak with one voice to your administrators and say this: this is a this is this is a, a an organized campaign that we can safely ignore because it has no bearing on the quality of our of our colleagues' um, performance as a faculty member. I think those things would help a lot. A call for solidarity. There it is. Laura Burnett, thanks so much for being here with us today. Laura Burnett is professor of history at Collin College in Texas, and you can see PEN America's full statement on her dismissal at PEN.org. And that's our episode for Friday, March 19th. Join us next week for the Pen Pod. You can listen to all our episodes at pen.org. Follow us at Pen America on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. I'm Stephen Fee for Pen America. This is the Pen Pod. See you soon.